You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting from New York for Room Now. I'll be speaking about disparities in lupus patients. Specifically, we'll discuss the abstract number 0768, which describes community-level poverty and length of stay in children hospitalized with pediatric lupus. Prior studies have demonstrated an alarming healthcare disparities in adult patients with lupus, which include high disease severity and activity amongst Hispanic and Black patients. Pediatric studies have demonstrated similar racial disparities. However, socioeconomic disparities such as income level have not been well studied in pediatric lupus. The authors here studied the kids inpatient data set from the year 2016, which is the largest all-payer pediatric inpatient data set in the U.S. They identified children between the ages of 2 to 10 with ICD-10 codes. And the primary outcome of the study was length of stay, and the primary exposure was median household income for each zip code. This income was then divided into four quartiles, with income quartile one being the poorest and income quartile four being the wealthiest. They identified a total of around 1,500 pediatric lupus hospitalizations, and these children had a mean age of 16. There was a high female predominance, around 84%, and the cohort was represented by a diverse patient population, 36% Black, 27% Hispanic, and 14% White. There were higher proportions of minority patients in the low-income quartiles compared to those of the high-income quartiles. Also, private insurance coverage was much more in the highest-income quartile as expected. However, one of the most important takeaway from this is that in the unadjusted analysis, income level was not associated with increased length of stay. However, after adjusting for multiple covariates of interest, such as race, ethnicity, age, sex, prolonged length of stay was specifically increased in the second lowest income quartile, but not in the lowest income quartile, which is the poorest. Also, the adjusted mean length of stay was higher in the lowest and the second lowest income quartile compared to all of the other quartiles. Thus, coming from low-income communities seem to have a disadvantage in terms of length of stay amongst these hospitalized lupus children. While this may be an effect of mediation by race, the second lowest income group seemed to have the worst length of stay, which was statistically significant. There may be a lot of factors that play a role in length of stay, but this may also reflect that those which were in the lowest income group may be protected uh, because they have some more resources such as community support, uh, which are not available to the second lowest income group. And they likely miss uh, assistance because of strict guidelines from the government or the healthcare system. And thus, we as a community need to take care of all of these patients, irrespective of what income quintile they come from equally. And thus, this is an important study reflecting the need to improve equity in pediatric lupus patients. Thank you so much for listening. And for more update, follow me on Bella underscore Metta on Twitter. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, reporting from ACR 2021, the virtual meeting. Yesterday, a great abstract was presented during the plenary session by Dr. John Hanley. 
John has been working on the area of neuropsychiatric lupus for many years. He's from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. This presentation was about functional connectivity, enhanced blood-brain barrier leakage, and cognitive impairment in lupus. Simply stated, this is about cognitive abnormalities in lupus being linked to um, blood-brain barrier abnormalities, and that's actually all very subclinical in patients that we would otherwise characterize as having neuropsychiatric lupus. My studies in the past that looked at this showed about 50-55% of patients actually do, character, do have features of neuropsychiatric lupus, uh, except we don't go so far as to diagnose them. Um, it's only when they get these dramatic presentations of psychosis and seizures and uh, other you know, focal and global findings do we get that diagnosis. In this study, they had almost 150 patients that they uh, assessed. They did functional uh, MRIs on them, and they did blood-brain barrier permeability assessments using diffusion contrast enhanced MRI, uh, a much more sensitive tool than the usual Q-albumin, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, they did cognitive testing in uh, their group, and they found that 48% of patients had evidence of cognitive impairment. A lot of questions from the audience were, how many people had lupus cerebritis or actually had neuropsychiatric lupus? And the answer was uh, almost very few. So this is sort of sub, a subclinical finding that you have to go after, but half the patients had evidence of cognitive impairment. When he mapped out the um, um, presence of cognitive impairment and the MR, functional MR associate, uh, findings that go along with that, uh, and then the amount of blood brain barrier permeability that was in, uh, impaired, they showed a fairly good correlation um, between the two, uh, and that was sort of surprising. And I think that this kind of data really calls for basically more research in the area. Again, they had 48% um, um, with an ab a cognitive abnormality. I'm reading some of the conclusions from the study. Um, you know, the bottom line is a lot of these tests we don't really have. You know, we don't do uh, functional MRIs. We don't have these tools for blood-brain barrier leakage and permeability problems. So um, we can do MRs, but they're often fairly nonspecific if we do that. And we don't have many studies that have looked at the utility of PET scanning and SPEC scanning in these patients. And it would be an expensive way of finding out information that we wouldn't really know what to do with. So what can you do? I don't think we, I think we need more research uh, from John and others that are working in this field. Um, if you want to know about, about blood-brain barrier, the simple measure is the Q-albumin. When you do a CSF um, spinal tap on a lupus with suspected cerebritis or infection or metabolic changes that affect the brain, uh, you should get an IgG index. You get a Q-albumin. Q-albumin is normally less than 9 um, about 20% of lupus patients will have a slightly elevated between 9 and 15, but really high Q albumins greater than 15, and I'm talking like 30, 50, 100, are usually due to infection and vascular events, strokes and antiphospholipid-mediated events. Q albumin is the CSF albumin times 1,000 divided by the serum albumin. Again, normally less than 9, but, you know, uh, and it's okay in cerebritis to be a little bit elevated. And then on the number of patients that they had in their population that had blood brain barrier permeability abnormalities wasn't high. It was about it was less than 
So it could be that Q album number between of nine and fifteen, about twenty percent of what I'm what I've seen in the past. That might jive with that result that he has there. But we don't have this. We need to have more research in this area. But it's good to make this correlation because if this is in fact contributing, you know, if autoantibodies, for instance, are leaking across from the serum into the CSF and mediating neuropsychiatric disease, and maybe that's something that we could therapeutically challenge in the future. Hope you enjoyed this abstract. See more on Room Now. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia, reporting live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. Um, I'd like to share with you a, a really interesting uh, abstract in the world of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, and it is abstract uh, 944. Um, and this focused on the uh, microbiome again. And we know that, you know, uh, up to 30% of psoriasis patients can progress into psoriatic arthritis. Um, there's a thought that there's this discordance in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis suggests potential epigenetic or environmental factors playing a role. Um, there's also evidence that the microbiome has a, a significant impact on psoriatic disease pathogenesis. So the question is, is, what are some of the factors contributing to the transition from psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis? Uh, we know initially it could be dependent on factors such as obesity, uh, maybe biomechanical stressors, uh, infections, or even genetic factors such as you know, relatives and, and HLA B27 allele. Um, but is there a second hit, maybe like a trauma, comorbidities, or, or a microbiome related event even? And this study uh, try to characterize the host microbiome relationship by studying the gut and skin microbiome. And I think the really interesting thing is this was a monozygotic twin study um, that were discordant for uh, psoriatic disease, meaning one uh, twin had uh, psoriatic disease and the other didn't. Um, and I think it was, it was the first of its kind. So stool and, and skin swabs were collected from nine sets of monozygotic twins. And uh, one who had, of course, psoriatic disease and the, the other being unaffected. And uh, these studies then underwent uh, metagenomic and RNA sequencing. Um, and again, they found ruminococcus was reduced or virtually absent in the gut of psoriatic patients. And this may be related uh, or associated with psoriatic disease. They also found two pathways um, that were upregulated, uh, including the tetrahydrofolate synthesis pathway. And lastly, they also noted uh, microbiome differences, even in healthy appearing normal skin of psoriatic patients and a decreased diversity compared to the unaffected twin. Um, I think, you know, we are obviously seeing more and more microbiome um, studies every year at these conferences. Um, and the, there's a few questions that still remain. Uh, one, which is, uh, what are the downstream effects of, of these findings? I think we have a lot of studies that show we found something, but the question is, what do we do with these findings? How do we target them? Can we target them? And another interesting question is, are these microbiome differences um, affecting the disease pathogenesis itself, or could it potentially be affecting the, the drug metabolism uh, in, in our patients? Um, I think, you know, all very interesting questions and, and very promising studies, and I think only time will tell. 
So thanks for tuning in for uh, live coverage of ACR 2021. Uh, visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Moral Aramahi with Room Now reporting to you on the virtual ACR 2021. Are you aware of COPA syndrome? I actually wasn't. And there was a nice abstract from today, abstract 0529, that talked about COPA syndrome. Specifically, the authors had recently established that a 77-year-old female who was 14 years out from a double lung transplantation for a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis onset of age 60 years, and then her son with RI-related ILD and her granddaughter with juvenile arthritis complicated by ILD all have COPA syndrome. So this prompted the author's desire to determine the prevalence of COPA syndrome-associated mutations in patients with ILD who received lung transplantation. So before we get started on what they found, let's just talk about what COPA syndrome is. Well, it's a rare cause of immune-mediated lung disease. It mimics RA-related ILD, lupus, and vasculitis. And there are adult-onset cases reported. So what did they find? Well, they determined that mutations in the COPA gene underlie some cases of severe pulmonary fibrosis. This was a great abstract that details a rare syndrome that is underdiagnosed, underrecognized. And I thought it uh, was a good one to reference for that reason. Thanks for tuning in to Room Now. Please check out roomnow.com for more coverage. This is Dr. Morala Ramahi. Thank you. Hi. So Vivian, it's so lovely to have you here. So for those watching at Room Now, um, which is just so exciting about this whole ACR 2021, um, I have Dr. Vivian Bykirk with me, who is a fellow Canadian, but has spent a lot of time now in New York. And I'd like to ask you, Vivian, with you know, what's going on with the big um, incident cohort of rheumatoid arthritis patients, ERA and CATCH? Tell me about that and where you think it, where we're at and lessons learned and maybe where we're going. It's a big topic, Janet. I'll try and be as succinct as I can. So for anyone that doesn't know, we started recruiting and following patients with new onset RA even early RA, as in not, didn't even meet criteria yet since 2007. And we have recruited over 3,500 patients and followed many of them out to three, if not five years, and some out to 10. Um, and just as a aside, along the way, we took out questionnaires, we added questionnaires so we could answer different questions. But really, we were very interested in how to improve the quality of life of patients. So we had to understand the predictors of remission. We had to understand how to implement changes to improve rates of remission, which indeed we did. Uh, and now we're looking at more of the uh, effects of other, we'll call them covariates. So uh, things like comorbidity, multimorbidity, we've seen that about 30% have metabolic syndrome. We've seen shockingly in Canada when we did this study that roughly 30% met criteria for obesity by BMI and another 30% overweight. And they were both of those groups had 25% and 50% less remission at two years. So that had never been shown in early disease. And then there was an interaction effect with smoking, which by the way, has gone way down. We started out and there were 25% smokers now roughly 10%. And that's still a little higher than many are reporting. 
Um, the, uh, uh, we've been looking at infections. We've been looking at the risk for COVID uh, or severe COVID, which we found to be very high. I think that you might've been on that one. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then recently we're thinking about how to follow people virtually in a better way because people can't come into visits and they've sort of gotten used to not coming into visits. And also we can't keep asking them to come often for a long time. So, um, so we're looking at how to make the physical exam uh, that we see ideally on a screen, but maybe by phone, uh, jive our MD global with the patient's report of swollen or pain, painful and swollen joints uh, and so that we can make a patient C dive. Uh, so patient clinical disease activity index modeled after the MD uh, clinical disease activity index. And we're showing that uh, it, patient, so first of all, it's responsive. If you flare, in other words, your C dive was low remission before, and you go to moderate high, the patient C dive flares too. Uh, and so it's pretty, uh, it, it's, uh, they, they agree quite highly. So I think that's promising. We have other measures uh, that we use as well. The RA flare questionnaire, which actually works reasonably well as a disease activity questionnaire. And of course the rapid three. Uh, so, you know, we can rely on patient report in our virtual visits and we need to get to do that better. And we don't even train patients how to examine joints and it's already this good. Right. So, and I, I think you were poised for COVID before it even happened by looking at the patient uh, derived CDI and the, and the, the proper calculation of a CDI and how they really were quite closely linked, especially at the extremes. If you're really flaring and they say they are, it's, it seems to be true and vice versa. If they're in remission, it seems to be quite concordant. So I think that that's really helpful. So it really sounds like uh, catch is looking at patients asking clinically relevant questions and then coming back to do epi kind of research on them. But in yeah. your other life, not only leading this incident cohort in Canada, your other life, you have things to do with the accelerated medicines program or AMP. And can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with the AMP um, area? Well, I'm going to just interchange there. So we've started a catch us consortium of early arthritis cohorts in the United States. Uh, five sites onboarding uh, and two um, Hopkins and us have been doing it for a while now, getting the bugs out, mimicking a lot of the study as we did the prospective cohort for AMP and which will hopefully be even better in AMP phase three or where they're calling it AMP aim. Uh, but in uh, we had three phases in AMP they get it all started, teach people how to do synovial biopsies, a lot of rooms doing it, uh, and uh, put together a study, and then develop all the SOPs and test all the pipeline analytic methods, which just completely changed every six months because it almost like they cubed uh, in terms of the amount of sequencing that could be done at once. So in this latest, and you'll people who have um, been watching and listening, they will hear the data from this latest round of analytics, which has roughly 72 patients in it. Uh, all of them had to have enough cells in their biopsies to go into the analytic pipeline.
measured uh, for each um, cell line. So these are single cells, RNA-seq and protein measuring site-seq studies. So from macrophages, monocytes, fibroblasts, T cells, B cells, and uh, endothelial cells. And uh, each of them have been characterized. So two things have happened. One, we've seen cells we never knew existed. We've seen states that change in different, um, probably maybe due to medication exposure or time we don't know yet. And we've also been able to cluster or find six different clusters of what are called um, cell type abundance um, proportions or CTAPs. And uh, each of those are quite different. You might get myelis, myelo, uh, myelo, blah, <laughs> monocyte, myeloid. myeloid line, thank you. <laughs> and fibroblasts in one, you might get very TB cell enriched in another, but it will be CT, it'll, there'll be CD4. And then you'll see another one where it's CD8 with a lot of granzyme. Uh, so we're, we're sorting through all of these, what seem to be discrete um, reconstructed RA groups that somewhat associate with clinical findings, but not entirely. So all of that still needs to be understood. I think there's still a chasm between clinical findings and what is seen on histopathology and in the joint. And uh, I think, I think, my personal opinion is that we need to better characterize the patients because we know that 35% of them will complain of a non-articular pain syndrome because we give body pain diagrams to everybody. And most of those are regional, probably tendinopathies or whatever. Uh, and about nine, six to 9% are quite widespread centralized pain. And we can't correlate synovial findings with that phenotype. So we need to do better. Right. So it really sounds like to, to wrap it up that we're getting closer to personalized medicine and some of these different uh, groups of cell types at single cell level and sequencing that maybe eventually we'll find a drug that would be more appropriate or a better durability of a medication. Better also, but maybe combinations, you know, right? One, right. That, one that targets each of even, even uh, complement. We haven't even studied that yet, but one that ones that target, but don't worsen safety in combination. I think that's where we're going. Uh, and then of course, managing the non-direct synovial itis uh, that is experienced in other parts of the body, which there's a lot of injury, as you know, you know, what's the first side effect of going on a TNF inhibitor back pain, you lift something up because you think you're still strong and you get back pain. So these are the challenges. Right. Well, I think, you know, your name is like every ACR, your name is all over the place in a great way. So um, I thank you very much for sharing your insights. And uh, this will broadcast on Room Now, and we'll have everybody that's listening to, to follow some of what you're doing with the cohorts um, throughout yeah. the next several years and maybe and decades. I, I can't wait to. I can't wait to implement what our colleagues are doing. There's all kinds of new autoantibodies to look at. Yes, a lot yeah. of, it's very exciting. A lot of interest in lupus and anti-interferon antibodies. I don't know if that happens in, in rheumatoid. So I think we have a lot to do. I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. You're aimed and we're both catching up. So thank you <laughs> very, very <nice>. much. <laughs> Thanks, Janet.
Hi, David. Welcome to the TNF uh, panel. It's you and I uh, this evening to talk. Um, can you tell us who you are and your Twitter handle? Yes, David Liu from Melbourne, Australia. And uh, you can get me at Dr. David Liu, DR David Liu. Uh, yeah, good to be back uh, and chatting TNF inhibitors with you, Janet. Yeah, well, uh, it's been an interesting day, although there was an awful lot of diseases discussed, which is the beauty of the ACR. We can learn so much. But have you got a TNF highlight for today? Yeah, and I know we'll get on to oral surveillance eventually, but I um, I think an uh, abstract which was a little bit uh, neglected, but I think was uh, important, uh, was uh, data from Corevitas, uh, what used to be known as a corona registry. And so looking at real-world US um, uh, data, in this case, in rheumatoid arthritis patients. And it looked um, at TNF inhibitors versus IL-6 inhibitors, and particularly um, at monotherapy. It did look at combo as well, but I'm interested in the monotherapy bit because we've seen um, randomized controlled trials, uh, Adapta looking at tocilizumab versus TNF inhibitors. Uh, we've seen Monarch uh, looking at cerilumab and TNF inhibitors. And both have shown that uh, there's an advantage uh, if you're not on methotrexate, to go with the IL-6 inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor. And I think that's a, always been a bit of a key um, point for IL-6 inhibitors. But does that actually wash out in real, in real world practice? Because real world practice, as we know, is um, often quite different to our, how things look in trials. And so in fact, if you look at this Corevitas data, um, things were basically the same between TNF inhibitor monotherapy and IL-6 mono, uh, um, inhibitor monotherapy. Nothing to pick between the two of them. Um, for memory, low disease activity was that, um, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.99. So really, you know, there's, I think, perhaps sometimes there's a little bit too much made of the differences between our drugs. We fundamentally got a lot of good drugs. And um, and I don't think that even if you can't take methotrexate, that you should, you should uh, veer away from a TNF inhibitor. Well, I think that that's really interesting because it does go against, as you say, against the clinical wisdom. Um, I thought what was interesting were... Um, Really, this is an indirect kudos to um, TNF inhibitors and how they perform with respect to COVID. So there were actually two abstracts. So one was earlier on abstract 87, um, really from the some global registries looking at inflammatory arthritis, but also Crohn's, psoriasis, et cetera, but mostly IA made up the data. And then one that uh, Professor Choi presented today on behalf of uh, his group looking at the NHS in Wales. And and that was abstract 990. And both of them, although the, the purpose of them wasn't exactly, they wanted to look at COVID outcomes and how patients did and how shielding sort of made less COVID infection occur in our IA patients in Wales. But both those two abstracts actually showed that if anything, patients on a TNF inhibitor not only did as well as their peers, in general, they did better. And maybe there's something to it. So it's just something to keep in mind that we are worried about drugs like rituximab, but the TNFs seem to fare well. These are non-randomized, but they're consistent study among study. So I think that's a highlight for TNF inhibitors and a, a good safety message for our patients. 
So if we shift gears and talk a little bit about oral surveillance, I'd like to kind of think your take on what we've learned, not about uh, a Jack or tofacitinib in particular and the higher dose in particular. I think I'd like to ask you more, what would our take home of a study like this be on um, these serious adverse events, MACE, malignancy, VTE, serious infection? What is your take home on a TNF inhibitor? The patients were on mostly um, a Tanercept and rest of the world, but in North America, um, adalimumab. So we, we, we really had two comparisons, although they were put together. But what would you be able to tell your patient uh, who's on a TNF inhibitor when they're asking about safety from these data that we just heard about today? Hey, Janet, it's really interesting. I think that... Uh... I've never heard more about the cardioprotective effects of TNF inhibitors than I have in the last couple of days. Um, and I think that's obviously um, uh, absolutely reasonable. And these are, these are, these um, aren't assertions, they're truths, but um, I think in a world where we're um, actually um, often worried about the underlying cardiovascular effect of rheumatoid arthritis, to, um, TNF inhibitors make a compelling prospect in, in the long term, in terms of long-term therapy and dealing with that. I think if, you know, we can't say on one hand, we know that um, rheumatoid arthritis affects the heart. Uh, we know that it's uh, a cardiovascular risk. We know that, you know, we should be considered like a cardiovascular risk factor like diabetes. Um, we can't say all of that on one hand. And then on the other hand, say, well, we don't really care about cardiovascular risk and rheumatoid arthritis. Choose whatever drug you want. Um, I think, so I think that's kind of, from that point of view, um, and, and, you know, far be it for me to say that TNF inhibitors don't have um, you know, their own safety issues of their own. But as far as cardiovascular risk is concerned, and I think once you start to add on the actual extra cardiovascular risk of patient, or where, which the most, most of our patients have, then, um, yeah, I think this has been really um, exciting data for TNF inhibitors. Um, I just want to remind everyone as well that uh, if you look at, it's, it's not like there's an efficacy difference between these two drugs, that, you know, you, between the two arms, you look at the um, efficacy data um, from um, oral surveillance, and um, it's exactly the same across across the course of time. So, I mean, that's been my take on it, Jenna. I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you think about what this means for TNF inhibitors. Right. So, I mean, I, there's probably three possibilities. So one's cardioprotective and the other isn't, or one's cardioprotective and the other is even cardio-negative, or they're both cardioprotective, but one's more so, or they're both cardio-negative, but one's more so. So it's really tough to tell. And when cardiologists, um, having discussed the data in our journal club and things like that, even though, of course, the paper's not out yet on oral surveillance, but lots of press release data has been out. Um, some of the cardiologists say, well, you know what, the rate of cardiovascular events was very low in both groups. They said, if this is a high-risk cardiovascular group, which obviously it was event-driven and it's randomized, so it's equal in the three groups, I would think your confounding variables that are known and unknown. But they said, you know, the rate's pretty low. So you're probably doing an okay job, even though you should try to get smoking cessation on trying to actually control their blood pressure, their cholesterol, and that a drug, the incremental benefit or causation, as you might interpret it one way or the other, depending on the drug class, is probably 
far less important than, you know, controlling the major risk factors. So I think you're right to say that we can rest assured for our patients other than there is this warning about, you know, severe congestive heart failure, TNF inhibitors shouldn't be used. But I think I do have patients in my practice where I, I, do, I forget that their ventricular function, LV function is so decreased because they're on four drugs that keep them out of heart failure. They're on an ACE, maybe they're on a spironolactone, et cetera, et cetera, a low dose beta blocker. So I think overall though, it's good news for those on a TNF inhibitor. I can't tell you to contextualize whether it's indifferent versus bad news for those on a jack. Right now, it seems like it's bad news, but I think we'll contextualize it over time and look at the rates, looking at the Intract trial that was tocilizumab versus Etanercept uh, with or without methotrexate. This was all with methotrexate. The hazard ratios uh, were almost similar. They were almost the same uh, of tocilizumab compared to a TNF. So again, numerically higher on tocilizumab, but met that non-inferiority. But the actual event rate was far, it was still low, but it was higher on Intract. But 10 years ago, maybe we didn't have as many comeds like lipid lowering drugs and things like that. So I think we'll probably see a lot of um, reviews, a lot of um, editorials, letters to the editor that will help contextualize. But I agree, this has been a good day for TNFs on the things that we've discussed. <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, our old drugs allowed good days as well, right? That's right. Absolutely. But it's good. You know, it's as you said the other day, it's our old friend. We know it well and uh, we continue to use them. And I think we can improve durability and look at risk factors. We're already, you know, having very little TB because we screen for it. Serious infection, we, we sort of know what to do if a patient's looking like they're sick or we avoid it in the worst case scenarios of uh, multiple serious infections of a lot of our advanced therapies. So I think um, we're, we're learning a lot on how to treat our patients and their comorbidities and multimorbidities effectively. And TNFs are helping us learn some of that. Oh, I mean, I think it'll be interesting as well because we will have some real world data as well to look at. And uh, maybe people do behave a little bit better when they know they're in a clinical trial. Um, and maybe that is important when it comes down to cardiovascular risk. Maybe that's why the, the event rates are low. Um, we've had enough experience with tofacitinib and with uh, all the JAK inhibitors to, well, we have enough globally to be able to start to look at these data and to start to um, try and draw some conclusions. Uh, so I'm sure this um, this hasn't kind of run its course and it's um, interesting that I think when it comes to oral surveillance and the malignancy co um, component, um, you know, looking at what the real world data show versus what the uh, trial shows may, may well be a little bit different. So let's see, I mean, I think let's see the similar kind of things uh, wash out with, um, with cardiovascular risk. We will wait and see. So always a pleasure talking to you and everyone, please continue to follow us at Room Now. Thank you.